Thanks, Alison. Morning. So I've called this uh, Christian holiness, uh, living it out. Um, Holiness um, doesn't always have a good press when it comes to uh, Christians. You get that phrase, don't you? You know, are you one of those holier-than-thous? Um, as if we're some kind of um, police of, uh, of, of people's behavior, um, which we're not at all, are we? But uh, holiness in Scripture has a much more positive and uh, helpful uh, definition. Um, our um, purpose statement as a church is this. It's all about growing and, and being on a journey. So our purpose statement is, uh, Charlotte, thank you. Helping people to make a journey to know and love Jesus Christ. Um, and the reason we've said journey there is because we're on a journey as Christians um, to know and love Jesus Christ more and more. It's, it's a growing thing. Um, and growing in love and knowledge of Jesus, in our relationship with Jesus, is part of what the Bible means by sanctification. Growing to be holy, like Christ, is part of the meaning of sanctification. But if you want to know what sanctification means, I'm sure you do. Here's uh, the Dictionary of Bible Themes. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in enabling believers to lead holy lives, dedicated to the service of God, and conform to his likeness. So it's all about leading holy lives. What does that mean? Well, it means leading lives in line with God's teaching that brings glory to him. So wherever we go on our front lines, whether it's the workplace or university, our homes, our community, it's leading lives that are submitted to Christ's teaching in in the Bible, and therefore lives that bring glory to God. Um, And in that process, as we submit to God's teachings, the Holy Spirit enables us to grow more and more to be like Jesus, to be more holy. So it's kind of two folds. It's being set apart and submitting to being set apart, and it's growing in Christ-likeness, in holiness. And living holy lives is the theme of this section of chapter 4. Paul urges the Thessalonians to live more and more holy lives. Verse 1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Um, We'll be singing a song later on called More of You. And the reason for that is that the Christian life is one of growth. We're on a journey into Christ-likeness. We're on a journey of more and more. Um, Until we are changed by Christ when we meet him, we are called to more and more love God and love others. We are called to grow to be more and more like Jesus. So I wonder how you're doing with that today. As a Christian, are you treading water? Or are you growing in your love for God and for others? Are you growing in your submission to the Bible and its teachings? Or are you kind of struggling with the bits you don't like? You know, the bits that you find hard to submit to. Are we growing in our submission to God's word and God's authority, even in those areas that we struggle with? The Christian life is all about growing 
And even for the Thessalonians, now remember this church gets commended in chapter 1. It's like a model church, isn't it? Paul says that the message rang out from you to the whole of the area. They were like a model. And yet, there's still room for growth. There's still room for improvement. Um, Often the the language in schools uh, is growth mindset now, isn't it? In universities and schools, it's all about having a growth mindset. Sorry to remind you of that if you're a teacher. But that's what the Ofsted language is all about. And we should have a growth mindset as Christians. We're not to stay where we are, right? We're not just to drift along and tread water, we're to have a growth mindset. We are here to be set apart to grow more and more like Jesus Christ in every aspect of our lives, okay? And that's challenging for us in a culture that wants us to conform to it and not to Jesus, right? I don't know if you've noticed, it's getting harder to conform to Jesus when the culture puts opposite pressure on us constantly to live in a certain way. We have to stand out and submit to God rather than the culture. So commendable though this church is, there's still room for growth. But Paul says about them in 1 Thessalonians uh, 1 verse 9, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Many of them, remember, were were worshipping Greek and Egyptian um, Roman gods. And they literally turned away from worshipping those to serve the true and living God when they became Christians. But there's still a work in progress. So the next, in the 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, Paul says, night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. So good as they are, commendable though they are, there's still room for growth. And there's a couple of areas in chapter 4 where they need to improve, and we'll come to those in a moment. But Paul says that he's praying that God would supply what is lacking in their faith. And there's a need for an increase in their love for one another. Verse 12, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. This is a prayer that we can never finish praying for ourselves in the church, right? We can never have enough love for each other and for everyone else in our community. This is a prayer that you can go on praying for the church until you die, right? And it will never be fully finished until Christ comes and gathers his church to himself. So we can go on praying for this. So here's the first point that I want to make. How are you doing in your Christian life? There is no drifting and treading water in the Christian life because that leads to actually to drifting backwards. Are you growing in your Christ-likeness? Are you submitting more and more to Scripture, even the bits that you find difficult in today's 21st century Britain to live out? Are you submitting to it or are you submitting to the culture? Are you kind of lukewarm in your faith, or are you still passionate for Jesus? Are you wanting to become more and more like Jesus, to conform to his likeness? Or are you just kind of drifting? There's two ways to go here. There's no fence to sit on when it comes to the Christian life. Sorry, folks. (laughs) You're either growing, or you're drifting. Drifting in the wrong direction. 
So some of us will need to examine ourselves and say, Lord, I want to grow. I want to become more like Jesus. I want to submit more to his teaching today. There is no third way of sitting on the fence. There's two areas I want to look at today that the Thessalonians were needing development in, as it were. If there was, a, if there was such thing as a development plan for the Thessalonian church, it would have two big areas on it. So I've gone all educational with you this morning. Two areas, sexual ethics and brotherly love, are the two big things on their development plan for improvement. All right? Improvement plan, development plan, whatever you want to call it. So let's look at the first one. Um, sexual purity. There was clearly um, an issue around sexual purity in the Thessalonian, Thessalonian church. Um, verse 3 says this. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that each of you should avoid sexual immorality. Um, so although they were commendable, it seems that some in the church had fallen into sexual immorality. And Paul addresses this and says, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. In other words, that you should become more holy, that you should live holy lives. And he highlights sexual immorality as an area where they're not living, all of them at least, living holy lives. Um, What does sexual immorality mean? Well, every single commentary that I have on Thessalonians, and I have about eight or nine, <laughs> the, the Greek verb for sexual immorality is porneia, from which we get pornography. Now, every single commentator, bar none, says this. However uncomfortable this might feel in 21st century Britain, this is the truth of the word of God, which we stand, which I stand under this morning. Porneia, sexual immorality, means all sexual relations outside of heterosexual marriage. It's not going to go down well in 21st century Britain, is it? Folks, <laughs> I stand under the word of God, not under the culture. I will not be accountable to the culture on the day of judgment. I will only be accountable to Jesus Christ. There is no commentator that I know of who would translate sexual immorality as saying that it does not include all of sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. Simply that they're not there. So in other words, this includes adultery, homosexual, sex, incest, prostitution, sex outside marriage. <clears throat> I don't know if you're aware that um, Franklin Graham has been prevented from preaching in this country because he holds traditional views on marriage. He was booked into a number of venues, Newcastle, Sheffield, all over the country. And because he holds traditional views on heterosexual marriage, the local councils have decided that he is a danger in those places. Now, I checked this morning the law 
on, um, you know, on um, freedom of speech. And these councils are breaking the law because there is no evidence of any hate speech in what Franklin Graham is saying anywhere. And he has a right to express, and this is what the law says, that Christian groups have a right to express their view of heterosexual marriage. We have freedom of speech. It's not just Stonewall that have freedom of speech. Christians also have freedom of speech. Okay? We have freedom of speech. We have a right. Now, if I was stood up here proclaiming hate, you'd have every right to challenge me. But I have every right to say to you that the Bible consistently teaches that sexual purity and sex is designed for heterosexual marriage. That's what the word says. And I have every right under the law to say that. And I think I would say it even if it wasn't lawful. I hope I would say it even if it wasn't lawful. Now this may get more pertinent as the year and the decade rolls through, folks. Now, I was interested to read this week that um, in the Evangelical Times, that uh, even though the Anglican Communion still has a traditional view of marriage, a number of bishops are speaking against the very doctrine that holds sway in the Anglican Communion. In other words, they, they're disagreeing with their own doctrine. But the Anglican doctrine is very clear if you read it because I've read it this week, done my research, and it says that marriage, Christian marriage, is for a man and a woman, under God. That's the, that's the doctrine. But some bishops, Bishop of Gloucester this week, have decided that they're going to go against their own denomination's teaching. I find it baffling. Anyway, I'm just wanting to say to you that this is not going to make me a popular person for saying this today. I'm not after popularity, okay? I don't care whether you agree with me or not. I will stand under scripture. Not under popularity or whether the culture agrees with me. I don't care. Because I am answerable to Jesus, not to the culture or to a more liberal view. I don't care. I care and I love people, as we do. And Franklin Graham, what, what saddens my heart is that Franklin Graham has gone on record and said, I love all people, I just want them to hear the gospel. But surely I have a right to express that I have a traditional view of marriage. That seems right to me. But he just wants to share the gospel. Um, why have I said all that? I say that because we are so much like the city of Thessalonica in 21st century Britain. You know? Sexual license is everywhere in our culture. Um, I sit on the governors of a school, and I know this. Um, you know, the, the, the basic view, and this is, this is not school-led, it's coming from, from higher authority, from, from the government and Ofsted. The view is around sexual ethics in school is it's all about consent. 
you know, be safe. Avoid catching STDs. Make sure that you engage in consensual and legal sex, which is, which is a good thing, right? I'm not going against the law on this. I'm just saying that this is the view. This is how to not get pregnant. This is how to avoid sexually transmitted diseases. And this is how to engage in safe, consensual sex. And that is what their kids are taught. Now, I want to say that the Bible has a much higher bar than this. All right? And if I'm asked that, uh, on, as a governor, I will give my Christian view. But actually, the school comes under a much higher authority when it's deciding its curriculum around these areas. It's not a church school. So we live in a liberal democracy. So I bring my own little light shining in my little corner. Sometimes I feel completely ineffective. But I'm there as a Christian. And I think it's important that I'm there as a Christian. People think I'm nuts. That's okay. That's okay. Christ has put me there. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Right? Okay, enough said. You see, the culture in Thessalonica was one where there were a myriad of Roman and Egyptian and Greek gods. And many of them practiced um, cult prostitution. You know, if you, if you, if you wanted um, your crops to go well... You, you would practice sort of a fertility ritual involving prostitutes to encourage the gods to smile on you and bring about fertility. That was how it worked. So cult prostitution was rife. And many of the Christians who, who would have joined the church in Thessalonica would have struggled because the culture was so saturated with sexual activity. Does it sound familiar? Um, Timothy Keller, who's a pastor in, in New York and a writer of many, many um, influential books, says that in New York, where he pastors, many, many, of the, many of the Christians that, or many of the people from New York that join the church feel that they can get converted from the waist up, as it were. Right? I know what he means. They think that, you know, I can be a Christian and I can still indulge in sexual immorality because New York is, like London, is a place of sexual license, you know? So long as it's safe and I don't do too much harm to people, it's okay. That's the message of the culture. So, you know, we don't want people who are converted from the waist up only, right? The whole of our bodies, God wants to be consecrated, set apart, right? So this issue is very, very pertinent. Um, one historian, Cicero, who spent time in Thessalonica in the first century BC, writes of this background in Thessalonica at the time. He says this, Let not pleasures always be forbidden. Let desire and pleasure triumph sometimes over reason. And he's talking about sexual license, right? In Greek society, a man who owned female slaves could use his human property to satisfy his sexual desires. And it appears that at least some, some in the Thessalonian church were imbibing, drinking in the culture around them and were actually struggling with Paul's teaching on sexual purity. How contemporary is this? Right? In a society where the message is 
sex is good. Um, and it's basically just be safe, don't do harm to others, make sure you have consensual sex and don't catch STDs. This is a huge challenge, this kind of teaching. Because Paul says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, set apart, holy, distinct from the culture, that you should avoid sexual immorality. The Bible sets a much higher bar than our culture. So the question, folks, this morning is, are we going to submit to the culture? Or are we going to submit to Scripture? Simple. Um, you know, our, my grandchildren, whenever that happens, or if it ever happens, <laughs> are going to, and I say this to my kids, because my kids think I'm a bit of a prude. But hey, guilty as charged, right? Guilty as charged. I, I say to them, you're going to think your children, that your children are going to call you prudes. Because the culture, folks, is moving and becoming more liberal. Have you noticed? And it's not going to change, I don't think, overnight. I pray that it would flip. But that we'd recover our moral compass as a nation. We pray for that. We yearn for that. We long for that. We petition for that. But, folks, we've got to be prepared for the fact that in generations are going to keep slipping into more and more immorality. That's where we're heading at the moment. I'm not here to be popular this morning. Honestly, I'm not. I just need to preach the, the word. In the Thessalonian church, the issue was in danger of damaging love within the Christian community. It, the adultery, sexual adultery particularly, always damages churches. Always. Verse 6. And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Now what was happening is likely this. One commentator, Gene Green, says this. In the intimate meetings held in the tight confines of the homes of fellow believers, because often they would meet in homes, Christians of both sexes were thrown together in a close setting that could have easily have given rise to adulterous relationship. And adultery meant sinning against the Lord, it meant sinning against your own body, and it meant sinning against the partners of, of, of the married partners, the spouses. The gravity of adultery, Paul brings out in the sentence, the Lord will punish men for all such sins. Uh, the Lord will punish men for all such sins. Now, we need to be careful here, lest we think we're off the hook, because Jesus said that adultery begins in the heart, didn't he? Jesus said in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 28, Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoa. You know, I don't have to physically commit adultery to commit adultery. I can commit adultery in my heart, right? Pornography is a form of adultery. I am lusting after another woman on screen or in a magazine or wherever that picture is. Folks, let's name it. It's adultery. It's sexual immorality. 
If you're struggling with pornography this morning, I'd urge you to talk to someone you trust, a Christian you trust, and ask them to pray for you to get free of this. It's a horrible thing. But God wants you free. He wants you free of immorality and adultery, lust. Now, let me at this point remind you of the gospel, because this is important. Because I could sound really kind of condemnatory here, um, and and I'm really wanting to remind myself that there's a gospel of grace. When it says the Lord will punish men for such things, we need to remember that the cross at this point, Jesus has already been punished in our place for our sin, right? So if we've sinned sexually in the past or are struggling with with sexual sins in the present right now, look at the cross and that tells you that Jesus took the punishment for you in your place. He bore the wrath, the judgment of God in your place, right? So if you come back to the cross and confess your sin, you will be forgiven. And God will help you to get free of pornography or whatever other sexual sin you're struggling with, okay? The gospel is good news. So whether whether it's sin that you've never confessed in the past, whether it's something you're struggling with now, Don't go away from this place without doing business at the foot of the cross. Bring it to Jesus. Get forgiven. Get free. Pray with somebody. It's such an important area. You see, Paul's warning about the Lord punishing people for such sins is a particular warning to those who continue to reject God's teaching. You know, God isn't saying if you've sinned sexually or in any other way, you're, you're off, you're, you know, you're out of, the, out of the book. He's not saying that. He's saying, turn from your sin. He's, he's given a warning. If there are sharks in the sea, you wouldn't say to somebody, oh, how dare you warn me of those, of those sharks with that uh, thing stuck in the sand? How dare you scare me, Right? You'd say, thank goodness that sign saying, danger, there's sharks, is in the water, right? You'd thank somebody for putting that sign there. You wouldn't say, oh, I'm I'm so offended of my civil liberties because you've, you know, I, I will swim where I choose to swim. If I choose to swim with sharks, you have no right to warn me not to, right? Silly example, but you know what I mean. You know, you are glad of the warning. And Jesus is saying here, I'm warning you so that you will not get hurt and hurt others and that you will not come under the Lord's condemnation. In other words, turn from your sin, confess it, and you will be forgiven. God waits with you and he runs for you with open arms. It's like the father in the prodigal son, right? If you will turn away from your sin, he comes running for you and says, ah, great, he's home, she's home. That's the God that we worship, isn't it? He wants you back. He wants you pure. And he'll run towards you as soon as you say, Lord, I haven't done this very well. I've screwed up. I've messed up. I'm really sorry. And he runs towards you with open arms and says, oh, I love you. I want you back. Isn't that great? So, important to remember the gospel. But this is important because if sexual sin or any serious sin is tolerated in the church, it leads to a blurring of distinctions 
because we're called to live holy lives. We're called to be distinct, separate, consecrated to God, to bring him glory. And if, and if our behavior is just like the culture, we're not going to be a light in a dark world, right? We don't want to be chameleon Christians who just kind of blend in like camouflage with the surrounding culture, right? What kind of Christian would that be? You know, we just live like everybody else. That's not what we're called to. We're called to be light in a dark world. We're called to live holy, consecrated, set-apart lives that come under the authority of Scripture and not the authority of us, our culture. We're called to surrender our own desire to the will of God. Paul goes on to say, verses 7 and 8, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Whoa. Right? If we carry on saying, you know what, I reject this teaching because I don't like it, you're rejecting God. That's what this is saying, isn't it? Folks, this is the word of the Lord. It's not Martin on, a, on, a, on his favorite topic, trying to make you feel guilty. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just trying to teach you the word of God. If we reject the word of God, we reject God. You know what? I'd rather reject the culture than God. <laughs> because there's a heck of a lot more consequences if I reject God and his teaching than if I reject the culture. I'm just trying to put it in black and white terms, because that's what this is saying. Who gives you his Holy Spirit. If we obey Jesus and surrender to his teaching, we will live with the power of the Holy Spirit in us and in the church community, right? If we grieve the Holy Spirit by allowing impurity in the church community, it's like... um, We're not very good at uh, moving fruit on sometimes from our fruit bowl. I don't know if you're like us, but, you know, fruit... Sometimes we have a a health splurge and we eat fruit really quick. And other times, you know, one apple goes bad and it infects the whole of the fruit in the bowl. Do you know what I mean? And that's the picture here. That's the picture here. A little bit of impurity can nullify, quench, the work of the Spirit in the whole community. Right? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, says Paul in Ephesians. Get rid of sexual immorality. Get rid of falsehood, lies, deceit, anger from among you. That's what it says in Ephesians 4. All all of these things can quench, nullify... prevent the Holy Spirit from moving powerfully in the community. So sexual purity is not just an individual thing for the Christian. It has an effect on the whole community. Do we believe that this morning? Right. Notice Paul's use of the plural. For God did not call us. Right? He could have said you, singular, but he says us. Us to be impure. It's calling the church to live pure lives. Second area where Paul calls the church to holiness is in brotherly love. Okay? 
Paul commends this church again and again for their love, but there's still room for improvement. There's still room for a growth mindset. So he repeats this in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 9 and 10. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers. Carries on, Charlotte. Thanks. Throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Now we already know that they weren't loving each other as as much as they should have done in the church because people were indulging in marital affairs which would have harmed people. You know, affairs harm people. They damage the reputation of Christ and his church but they also do harm to people. Um, If you're in a workplace where people are having affairs, it's a horrible place to be, isn't it? Anybody, you know? You know, that people, have, Christians work in places where people are having affairs. And it's almost the culture. Um, and it's so damaging. It's so damaging. And it was doing damage to the church. There were tensions in the church. There would be, wouldn't there? If people are having affairs, there's going to be tensions. What The other issue was that some members of the church were opting out of work and, and opting out of supporting themselves for so-called spiritual reasons. And they were becoming a burden to others in the church. They were sponging off others, verses 11 and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, I like that, <laughs> and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. There were some who were spiritualizing the coming again of Jesus, and they were expecting it at any moment, and they were saying, look, to get myself ready for Jesus and his imminent coming, I need to be at prayer, I need to be spiritually prepared, and so I'm not going to go to work, because there's no point in going to work. Because Jesus is coming back, and I want to be spiritually prepared. So I'm not going to earn a a daily living. Because, in other words, the spiritual priorities are much higher than working for a living. But Paul says this is false. This is wrong ethics. Um, In a culture where people were paid on a daily basis, you can imagine that these people that were opting out of working for a living were becoming a real burden to others in the church. Can you imagine? I'm I'm not going to work because the Lord has called me to prepare spiritually for his coming. Oh, by the way, could you lend me 50 quid? (laughs) It wouldn't be long before there was a big debt building up around these people. Now, please don't hear me wrong. I'm not talking about people who can't work through unemployment or through health issues or through frailty. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about people who are opting out of work for spiritual reasons. Okay? And Paul says this is wrong. It's disrespecting others in the church. And it's bringing the church into disrepute. Can you imagine people outside of the church thinking, lip and heck, they should just get on and earn their own money, you know? You know, all this sort of spiritual fervor and, enthusi- you know, hyper-enthusiasm about the Lord's coming. Look, we all have to work for a living, and it would bring the church into disrepute. And sponging off others is not a loving thing to do. It's not a loving thing to do. 
We should support those who genuinely need it in the church. We should be generous. But we should not take advantage of the generosity of others by refusing to earn our own living if we're able to. The application is clear for us. The watching world is not attracted to Jesus by emotional hype and by a kind of false spirituality. The watching world is attracted to Jesus by Christians who lead holy lives in their workplaces, who live consecrated, set-apart, Christ-like lives in their families, in their community, in their schools, in their universities, who work diligently and conscientiously, getting on with things quietly for the glory of God. That's what the world is impressed by. Loving God and loving others in the name of Jesus. Um, Jesus says, doesn't he, something very similar in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, which I'm guessing is why Alison may have chosen light of the world, but I don't know really. But uh, this is what Jesus says. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. In our workplaces, in our family, in our community, we want people to see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. We want to shine as light. We want to live holy lives, consecrated to God, submitted to his authority and teaching. Not to the culture, but submitted to God. Let's pray. Father, 